This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thank you so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and around the world. And as ever, and you won't be surprised to hit me, I know I say this every week, but it's always true. We have got so much to cram in during our time together this week. If it's okay with all of you, I will focus on Prime Ministers and Downing Streets, the relationship between Prime Ministers and Number 10, those who work there. I will be doing so for obvious reasons. Uh, Then we've got some brilliant questions. It's really interesting. Your questions are already starting to ask about possible successes and what form that might take which reflects the instability of the current regime for all the spin about change and so on. This is a strange period of this epic saga. But before all of that, uh, a really big announcement and then a familiar announcement. First of all, uh, again, if it's okay with all of you, a very important uh, and exciting announcement, I think. Well, I'm excited. Obviously, all of you have helped support this podcast get to where it is. I'm now recording in a studio. Some of you used to email saying, oh, Steve, you know, a bit too, the, the sound goes up and down. Well, we're in a studio now. But I'm really excited that we're now on Patreon. Too. Now, a lot of you know about Patreon because some of you have emailed me and said, get on Patreon, get on Patreon. And I'm doing it now. But for those of you who don't, it's the uh, crowdfunding platform for independent creative projects, of which this is one. So if you want to support Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast, and help keep us growing, this uh, community trying to make sense of politics, this is the best way to do it. If you go onto the Patreon site, you will see different kind of tiers. And those who back us, well, you get all kinds of things. Ad-free episodes, rock and roll politics mugs with some of our favourite kind of catchphrases. You'll see what I mean. And also, and I'm really excited about this, uh, I've been wanting to do this for some time. I've been trying to work out how I could do it and spare the time. I'm going to be doing exclusive bonus podcasts on huge political events. And the first theme, if it's all right with all of you, is going to be epic British general elections. In a way, elections are really odd in that they are excitedly covered while they take place. 
And then quite a lot of them just kind of disappear from memory rather quickly. And I begin, and it's already there on the site if you're kind enough to check it out, with uh, what I believe to be the most cinematic and weird general election of the 20th century, the one that was held in February 1974. Well, I go into it, why it is so cinematic and weird and odd and merits revisiting. Um, So that's on uh, one of the tiers if you're kind enough to join me on Patreon. And then it's up to you. Do get in touch and email me with another general election you would like to be explored in a similar fashion. And the one that gets most votes I'll do next time. And once we've done that series, I'm going to do other big themes of British politics, which you can't do on the normal weekly podcast, where obviously it's pegged to current events. Um, Oh, yeah. And if you go down the tiers on the Patreon, you can even get a live rock and roll politics show in your house for a party. Get your friends round. Drinks will be had within the rules, of course. What you do is you search Patreon Rock and Roll Politics or just follow the link in the notes that will accompany this podcast. So that is a really big announcement. I've been thinking about it for ages and very excited that it is happening now. And I really hope uh, you'll all join me on that because we will have some fun together. And thank you as well if you do, because it helps keep this whole thing going. Now a more familiar announcement. The live show, Rock and Roll Politics, is at King's Place on Monday, February the 21st. I think it's going to be epic. We're in for an epic few weeks. We need to get together and make sense of it all. That's the place to do it. And I'm pleased to say it will be streamed live as well. So if you're watching on the moon or can't get to King's Place, there is the live stream. So that's a more familiar announcement. But as I say, the big one, completely new, is we're on Patreon. And thank you those who emailed in saying, why don't you get on Patreon and do a few more things? And thank you if you're going to join us for that wild journey. And now back to the day's events. What has happened in recent days is on one level surreal. You have a drama which is very clear in its direction and very precise in its implications. The Gray Report, when published in full, assuming he dares to publish it in full, we now know will be damning because her interim report, what she called her update, was in itself damning but generalised. And that grey report will be the moment when Tory MPs, and as we discussed last week, it's over to them. It's not what we think, it's what they think alone. But they, I have no doubt, will have the evidence, if they choose to do so, to uh, move against Boris Johnson. But in the meantime, he has plucked from the Gray Report the lesson which is slightly easier for him to learn, um, but is, as I'm going on to explain, a red herring, the restructuring of number 10. Uh, And he's done it. Partly he's been forced to by the resignation of his uh, head of policy, but he was going to do it anyway uh, on the basis that that would save him. And the way to look at the changes that have taken place is not what will be the implication for the direction of the government, 
because there will be very little or no implication for the direction of the government. Will it change his behaviour? No. He is incapable of change at his age. His behaviour is wholly unsurprising and part of a pattern which is lifelong. Uh, The only question we need to ask is, will it convince MPs to give him more time? And that is the only question he is attempting to answer. So he's put an MP and a minister in charge of his new reconfigured number 10. He's put an MP in charge of his new policy unit. And the message is clear. I've got it. I've I've learned the lessons. And that there will be this new stimulating dialogue between number 10 and MPs who have felt largely ignored. It's up to MPs whether they choose to think that this addresses all the issues from party gate or is the red herring it so clearly is. And over to them. As I say, I think they are in a state of indecision still on the whole, although we know of some others who have put their names in in terms of registering this or triggering a vote of no confidence. But what's really interesting is uh, about the relationship between a prime minister and his or her number 10, because it tells us more about the character of a prime minister than their selections of cabinet ministers and indeed their wider conduct, because in those uh, areas they are inevitably constrained. Even someone as mighty as Johnson was until very recently had limits on who he could put on in his cabinet. We know his criteria on the whole, whether they backed his calamitous version of Brexit and whether they were weak and subservient or would be too scared to question him. Uh, Now, they were the criteria, but even so, there was a limited pool from whom he could select uh, MPs on the whole apart from old Frosty who got in there from the House of Lords. Ah, Get me Frosty, get me Frosty. He's not saying that anymore. And uh, yeah, by the way, Frosty, what an act of betrayal, whatever you think of Johnson. He's only had a platform via Johnson, and now he's slagging him off at every opportunity. But on the whole, he had to choose his cabinet from MPs and a limited range further narrowed by that criteria. Will they be weak and subservient? Do what I say don't challenge me because I fear scrutiny as a human being and a politician, and will they back my version of Brexit? Uh, So that's a pretty narrow pull. Uh, Similarly, when a leader navigates policy areas, he or she is inevitably constrained. But in their choice as to who works in number 10, it is theirs. And therefore, I mean, they're free more or less to appoint who they want. And so those are the appointments that tell us most about the character of a prime minister. Much can be learned about Johnson as a public figure when you look at what has happened in his number 10. This is the third reconfiguration in a very short period of time. He's only been prime minister since July 2019. And we know the first phase was Dominic Cummings. Uh, who was utterly dominant within Johnson's number 10. And he could only be utterly dominant because Johnson let him. That tells us much about Boris Johnson, as I've said many times, so I'll only say it briefly again. He is not a good judge of character because he is not really interested in 
people as such. He's interested in mythological figures like his version of Churchill, a legendary version, or his version of Shakespeare, you know, safely distant uh, figure who's not going to kind of interact with Johnson. Or it'd be slightly weird if he were to. Shakespeare, can you imagine? I've just appointed William Shakespeare as my chief of staff and Winston Churchill as my director of communications. So because he's not that good a judge of character, he would have just thought about Cummings. Uh, yeah, he's the man. He's the man. Brilliant on Brexit. He would have noted a strategic verve, which he is right to note. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to note uh, Cummings has a strategic verve. But he wouldn't have sat down and thought through clearly the implications of bringing in such a fiery, willful, provocative character as Dominic Cummings, one whose uh, relationship with democratic politics had ended in tears several times before. He worked for Ian Duncan Smith and dismissed Duncan Smith as a disaster, quite accurately, actually. He then worked with Michael Gove and Cameron had to get rid of uh, Cummings. Johnson wouldn't have thought through, were there these intense, deep risks in making such an appointment? Anyway, we know what happened. Uh, First of all, uh, Cummings did direct Johnson towards getting Brexit done, in inverted commas, but at great, great cost. Cummings' acts have created a Conservative parliamentary party that is lacking the depth and breadth of even the more recent one, because they famously purged all those Tory MPs, the likes of Rory Stewart, who under different circumstances would have been a formidable figure in the current Conservative parliamentary party, gone as a result of the purge they did on anyone who questioned uh, that Brexit must be done with or without a deal and so on. So it came at great cost uh, to the parliamentary party and it came at great cost, that appointment, to the workings of the wider government. People were terrified of Dominic Cummings to the point of kind of near paralysis. Uh, There was no relationship with the parliamentary party and so on. And he fell out famously with uh, Johnson's wife, uh, Carrie Johnson. And so Johnson got rid of him. And we know the consequences of that particular move still being played out as we reflect on things now. Johnson's next number 10 is equally revealing in different ways. Johnson doesn't know many people in politics. He's a loner. Uh, Again, we've reflected here. He is an extrovert introvert. Uh, He performs on a stage but doesn't really... Uh, engage with people. He didn't know his parliamentary party very well, and he certainly doesn't know many kind of external figures who he could bring in to run his number 10. So he turned to two people, I think at least one of which was on Cummings' advice to take things over. Simon Case and Dan Rosenfeld, who worked in the Treasury as a civil servant, but has now moved in or had moved in, Uh, to be his chief of staff. And that is revealing because it shows how Johnson, again, cannot reflect on how things are run and what relationships are needed to make it run effectively. These were strangers to him. They were highly effective in their different roles. I think Case had a role with the royal family and Roosevelt being a highly 
efficient uh, civil servant. He worked with Alistair Darling in the financial crash. And when Alistair Darling heard, he, he got on very well with Dan Roosevelt. When he heard that um, uh, Dan Roosevelt moved in with Boris Johnson, he had to go and lie down in a darkened room for 24 hours. He was so surprised that he could see no common ground, no chemistry. And of course, there hasn't been. And the dysfunctionality took different forms from the Cummings dysfunctionality, but it was still there. And now we have its third form, uh, Boris Johnson's number 10. And this one can be translated very easily as, how do I save my own skin, number 10. And as I say, the moves cannot be interpreted in terms of changes of direction, changes of policy. It's aimed at giving the MPs the impression that there will be a fresh dialogue with them. Johnson, again, well, he knows Gito Harry. He worked with Gito Harry. I know Gito Harry quite well. He worked with him when he was mayor of London, uh, and they got on well. But since then, I mean, Gito Harry was a Remainer. I think he voted Labour in 97. It's the other interesting thing about, I mean, I'm sure he voted Tory in more recent times, but he's not an active tribal Tory. And in a way, that's another interesting thing about Johnson's number 10. And this is to his credit, by the way. His number 10 must be the least tribal number 10 in modern times. Cummings famously wasn't a Tory, loathed the Tory party. You know, say Gito Harry has not been a tribal Tory, although committed to Johnson, albeit erratically. Others, the author of um, the biography of Clem Attlee, Bew, is in there or was. I, it's, there's been such movement. I can't remember whether he's there still. I think he is. It's sort of reflecting on foreign policy. It's a very non-tribal number 10. And in a way, Johnson, although brought up wholly on the right and its institutions, the Spectator, the Telegraph, and of course, the Conservative Party, is a sort of confused Tory in some ways. He, he, he doesn't hang around or didn't hang around much in the tea rooms of the House of Commons when he was a Tory MP. He does now because he needs their support, but he, he didn't in the past. But anyway, it's, this latest one is just aimed at calming down Tory MPs. And when we pose the question, will it work? Again, you have to ask the question, will it work with Tory MPs? It wouldn't work with me. I doubt if it worked with most of you. I mean, this is meant to be a major constitutional change where the office of the prime minister is created. It's something Tony Blair thought about doing. He thought it would take about two years to do. You first of all explore the concept, then you work out how it's going to work, then you appoint the people and so on. Two-year project. It's been done over a panic-stricken 48 hours. So, of course, it's not going to work in a substantial and serious way. It doesn't matter what us lot think. It's the key question is whether Tory MPs buy it for a time. They might for a time. I don't know. By the time you hear this, that vote of no confidence might have been triggered. Nobody knows quite the numbers who put their names in for that. To go back to the broader picture, we await the Sue Gray full report. And I suspect at that point, us lot and most people will say, well, he might have put a new chief of staff in at number 10. But look at this report um, and how it reflects on him as a leader. But will Tory MPs They are the only ones that matter. That is, though, the key political issue still. 
the Grey Report and its consequences and its connections to other areas of Johnson and conduct and integrity and lying. The reason I say that with complete confidence is that it's always the wider politics that land prime ministers in trouble, not the state of their number 10 operation. Theresa May had a very smooth running number 10 operation. Uh, she made quite sensible choices to, uh, in, in terms of the senior figures in number 10. She began, of course, with Nick Timothy as one of her key advisers. In my view, uh, much the most interesting senior Tory in terms of um, them leaving behind pure Thatcherism, the orthodoxies of pure Thatcherism. She famously had to sack him and Fiona Hill uh, after the election where she lost her party, the majority. But they were completely sensible figures to put in that number 10. And they worked for her in ways that uh, outraged some ministers, but nonetheless, they worked for her. She always brought in people who she knew. Although she is socially shy and awkward, she always had friends who she could bring in. Uh, Damien Green, who she brought in after she had had to sack uh, uh, Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, was an old Oxford friend of hers, a very calm figure. She had to sack him in the end. But then she brought in Gavin Barwell, who, you know, has been out and about a lot recently commenting on Johnson's number 10, uh, far from flattering assessment of Johnson and his number 10. People who she could turn to and trust. She brought in Robbie Gibb, who I work with at the BBC. He would have been a much more hardline Brexit uh, evangelist than Theresa May, but she kind of rated him. They worked together. He was very loyal to her and so on. It was a very smooth running number 10 in that respect. It didn't save her at all because the broader politics were so wild, that hung parliament. She was never going to get her Brexit deal through that hung parliament, however hard she tried. And my God, did she try. Do you remember those endless votes? Um, and so you can go back to a smooth running number 10, one where you trust the people and know the people and be destroyed by the broader politics. It's not a prediction that Johnson will be destroyed by the broader politics as say it's up to Tory MPs in the coming days and weeks. But it is an assertion that even if, which won't happen, his number 10 becomes a very smooth running operation full of mutual trust and respect, that's not the issue. It's always the broader political context. Gordon Brown, it was very traumatic for him in number 10 because there were endless attempted coups and so on. But he had utterly committed people in there who had worked with him in the Treasury and continued to do so when he moved to number 10. And indeed, at the moment of maximum danger for him, when there were those endless, rather pathetic, attempted coups against him, what saved him was a political act, not a reconfiguration of number 10. Uh, but in that great Shakespearean twist, he brought back Peter Mandelson into his cabinet in a senior role. And uh, a lot of the dissenters assumed Mandelson would be with them. And then they saw him with Gordon Brown. And it was a moment that buttressed his position. But it was a political context that was making Gordon Brown's life hellish, attempted internal coups. And it was a political move, not a reconfiguration of number 10, that protected him up until the election. People like working with Tony Blair. It was a very stable number 10. 
however stressful the wider political context. And he had some people there all the way through. Jonathan Powell, who incidentally has said Johnson's reconfiguration is unworkable. So there were uh, Alistair Campbell, virtually there all the time until he finally left. But even then, Blair was on the phone to him all the time. It's really interesting in Campbell's diaries. He resigned on a Friday. His first phone call with Tony Blair asking advice about something was on the Saturday. And one of the reasons why people uh, who worked with Blair felt very supportive towards him, even when they sometimes disagreed with his policy initiatives. Most of them were to the left of Tony Blair. Not difficult, but most of them were. But they were utterly loyal to him because they liked working with him. But again, in the end, that wasn't the issue um, that either gave Blair all those election victories and then in the end forced him out. That It was always other factors, political factors. Cameron, again, ran a very smooth number 10 operation. He also got on well with Osborne, his chancellor, too well. There was no mutual scrutinising in depth that is required of more substantial figures. But uh, Cameron was good at running things. He ran the coalition surprisingly well um, because it was, uh, you know, a difficult thing to do. But what finished Cameron was nothing to do with his number 10. It was that he lost a referendum. And boy, are we living with those consequences. So you can see in that context how revealing these number 10s are about the individual prime ministers, but it's the politics that determines the fate of the prime minister. Johnson's reconfiguration is political because, as I say, it's aimed at saving him. Uh, And all the other poor sods who are being kicked out are collateral damage. But what about the broader consequences of the Gray report when it is finally published? That, it seems to me, is the key moment in the short term. And again, it's not up to us lot. It's up to Tory MPs. And now, if it's okay with all of you, we're going to go to all of you uh, with questions, much of which relates to what we've just been talking about. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And we are going to begin with the questions with Connor Jones. Connor puts, writing from Wales. Thank you for being so precise about your location, uh, Connor. Uh, He says, with everything that's going on, there was one news story easy to miss where Sunak said, I wouldn't have said the Jimmy Savile comment. Not that easy to miss, uh, Connor. It's been much reflected on. This is where Rishi Sunak, after I can tell you, much reflection on what he should say said that he wouldn't have made the comment linking Starmer with uh, Savile. This was an obvious break with Johnson, uh, Connor writes, and if it was intentional, shows his lack of tact in winning over MPs as he clearly displayed his manoeuvring for all to see. Or he did it off the cuff, not realising the political consequences. You're my favourite word. I think that's one of the rock and roll politics mugs, by the way. Consequences. Yeah. 
Now, I think that's very uh, perceptive of Connor. It wasn't off the cuff. It was thought through. But I think you might be right about the lack of tact. That was not meant to undermine Johnson. But Sunak's people, those who want him to be leader, and there are quite a few in the media and in the Tory party, are saying to him, you cannot become contaminated by Johnson at his worst. You've got to show distance as the most senior cabinet minister in the Johnson regime. And so they decided he must distance himself in relation to the Savile remarks, which is a perfectly legitimate calculation, except for exactly what Connor suggests, that that in itself can be seen as transparent scheming, overt distancing from a vulnerable prime minister. It's a bit clunky, to use another word I use too much. You know, like Keir Starmer, wherever you see him, there's a huge Union Jack flag behind him. So there are risks in what Sunak has just done. Liz Truss, who is a an insubstantial figure, I think it has played it cleverly just by conveying 100% support. That's what party members will appreciate more, I suspect, the manoeuvring, even if party members in some cases have decided Johnson has got to go. John Bowdler, should the House of Commons Speaker have the power to insist that government, uh, the government makes statements to Parliament before the media? No, I don't think they should, John. It is too narrow a stage these days, the House of Commons, although it is vital and central, the elected forum. But voters on the whole don't watch BBC Parliament or whatever. They, I think ministers have every right to announce on other platforms. The Speaker gets into a real state about it. Uh, And I can understand why he's representing the elected comments. But no, I think they've got every right to find other ways of conveying what they're doing, even if what they're doing is um, uh, to use that old parlance spin, which it is sometimes, though not always. Uh, Stephen Petrie says, hope this finds you well. I listened to your last podcast on my run into the West Yorkshire hills above where I live. And he sent a photo which I looked at with envy. Thank you for sending it. But these photos torment me as I reflect on uh, paths taken and not taken to cite a famous uh, poem. Uh, The run is just a little too far to get round before you finish. My God, how far are you going? These podcasts are going on these days, on and on, like Boris Johnson. Although I did get some nice emails saying they wanted to go on and on and on and on even more. Uh, last week. Thank you for those. I spent the last stretch digesting what had been discussed. My question is, is it possible for the Conservatives to successfully make yet another restart, the third since 2010, irrespective of whether Johnson goes or not? Or have they ran out of political space, to use one of your, my favourite terms? Uh, yeah, I've got a lot of favourite terms being cited this time. That is one of my favourite. And it's a good question. If I were Keir Starmer, I would be saying virtually in every sentence, this is the fourth term of a Conservative government. Boris Johnson is trying to pretend, or did when he was on a high, that this was a new government. It's not. It's the fourth term, with echoes from the first. If Johnson were to go, that means that um, in this period, both Theresa May and Boris Johnson became Prime Minister without any voter apart from the membership of the Tory party, average age 212, having a say. And um, that is risky. 
I think. But obviously, if he stays, we can already see the degree to which he is being challenged and undermined, having been so dominant and omnipotent as a prime minister until about two months ago. So, yeah, enjoy your running, Stephen. It looks great where you are. And next, oh, yeah, we're going abroad for a bit. Uh, Matthew Johnson, hello from sunny Dubai. I saw your tweet regarding the cabinet being the pivotal instrument in toppling Boris Johnson. Yeah, I tweeted that with all the stuff going on, we have one model for a toppling of a Tory prime minister. With Margaret Thatcher, the key intervention was the cabinet. When they told her she had to go, she went. She wouldn't have done otherwise. She would have fought the second round of that leadership contest. And at the moment, Johnson has the cabinet parroting this stuff, you know, Savile was all right and all the rest of it. If they turn, he's finished. Until they turn, he's not, in my view. Matthew from sunny Dubai uh, writes, the problem with the current cabinet is that many of them owe so much to Boris or won't be reappointed by the next prime minister and therefore they remain supportive. He quotes Nadine Doris. It's quite worrying for Johnson that his main people out there seem to be Nadine Doris and, God, I've forgotten it. Oh, Fabrican, Michael Fabrican, you know, the guy... When he first came into Parliament in 1987, Andrew Rawnsley was the sketch writer at The Guardian. He looked down and said uh, of Michael Fabricant, if that isn't a wig, he needs to get one. And that kind of framed him. And that was 1987. They are the two people we keep on seeing. Nadine Doris looking slightly bewildered to be questioned even about the beauty and deification of Johnson and Fabricant being Fabricant. But as Matthew points out, a lot of these people, Pretty Patel, Dominic Raab, they owe their elevated positions to Johnson and therefore will support him. That is one of the big factors. As I've said many times, based on my book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, I concluded Prime Ministers are very difficult, almost impossible to dislodge. And one of the levers they have is the power of patronage. And it's a really powerful one. Uh, Vincent Bowden, who writes that he's part of the Geordie diaspora in southern Netherlands. And he says, I live very close to Maastricht, where that famous treaty was signed in 1992 to allow residents to move, live and work freely between member states. Amazing privileges that seem to spark uh, the anti-EU fever that drove the Brexit decision 25 years later. Once the corona fog has cleared, can there be a figure platform strategy that communicates calmly and factually the price paid for that decision. Well, over time, I mean, he's wondering also whether there's a sort of Farage equivalent, but for getting back in. These people will emerge. I mean, Andrew Donis never stops now. I don't think they're there yet. Uh, We're going to have to wait a bit longer, even though you make the potency of uh, the arguments very strongly. Oh, Vincent says, keep up the great work. Thank you. Uh, yeah, well, we're going to be expanding the great work, Vincent, on uh, Patreon. So, and he said, oh, I hope Barnard Castle calls you soon and I could tie up a trip home with some lively discussion. That would be great. Yeah, I love that uh, 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 rock and roll politics in Barnard Castle. So do come next time, Vincent, uh, if you can get away from the s- southern Netherlands. And now, how about this for a segue from uh, Stephen uh, Bainbridge? Greetings from Barnard Castle. This is my first time asking in, writing in to ask a question, but I've been listening to your podcast for some time now and I've enjoyed seeing you at the Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, yeah, well, I hope to be coming to the Edinburgh Fringe 
uh, this summer for some live rock and roll politics. Given the troubles facing our Prime Minister, focus is inevitably turning to who might replace him. But in amongst the names that are regularly being branded about, there is one obvious name not being talked about, and it's the one who has done the job before, Theresa May. How about that for a proposition? I'm not a fan of hers, but it strikes me that she could be the obvious replacement. Her seriousness compared to his frivolity, uh, her integrity, and so on. Well... That is um, quite a plot twist, as you acknowledge, uh, Stephen. It won't happen. It's a great idea. It would be the most remarkable comeback in the history of politics anywhere in the world, I think. But it's not going to happen. She is still seen by a lot of Tory MPs as a failed prime minister. And indeed, in many areas, she did. I agree with you that given what has followed, her standing has soared immeasurably. I even now think personally that that hung parliament should have backed her Brexit for lots of reasons. It was a better deal. It would have split the Tory party. The, the hardliners would have gone off, I think, uh, and joined the Brexit party. And then, and then we could there, there could have been a more sensible discussion about what the hell to do with this Brexit referendum where no Brexit had been specified. You ask, could she be rehabilitated? She is being partly. She's an interesting figure. She's out to get Boris Johnson. Did you see her last week with that uh, statement on the update of the report? But I don't think um, that's going to happen. But a good provocative idea. That's uh, absolutely for sure. Okay, another question on the uh, Rishi Sunak front, uh, whether he's Chancellor or Prime Minister in the run-up to the next election. Uh, Paul Cooper wonders whether they will do very little on the economic front in spite of urgent fundamental things to be done. Muddle along until the next general election, where once again real urgent decisions are postponed or partly addressed and then reversed. Smoke and mirrors is always my assumption in the build-up to elections. As you said rightly, we are already started the next election in terms of campaigning. And if Linton Crosby is back, which he sort of is, then the die is cast. Yeah, uh, I think, Paul, in a build-up to an election, which is effectively now, big economic decisions aren't taken. Instead, economic policy is largely shaped by, in the case of this government, for example, wanting to be in a position to offer pre-election tax cuts, whether they are sensible, affordable or not. And so this is a big mountain for Sunak and co to climb over in terms of the national insurance rise and the other increases that are going to hit people in the so-called cost of living crisis. I don't know why I put so-called in. It's going to be a very big moment this spring. Um, But as soon as it is feasible, they will not be saying what is best for Britain, even in terms of their own ideological inclinations. It is how do we win the election? And for the uh, uh, whether it's a Johnson-Sunak combination or some other combination, pre-election tax cuts will be the priority. So thank you for asking that. Now, I'm very keen to read this one from uh, Rick Muir because uh, Rick has um, worked for the IPPR, you know, the think tank. And he's responding particularly to something I was, you know, the whole Cressida Dick row. Uh, which I addressed partly last week by pointing to the blurred lines of accountability with the Metropolitan Police. And wherever there are blurred lines of accountability, in my view, there is trouble. You can look at it within the 
management of the BBC, where there are blurred lines of accountability, parts of the NHS and so on. Anyway, Rick writes, I'm a long time listener, but first time correspondent. I lived in Oxford and typically listen while running along the Thames towpath or through the South Oxfordshire countryside. An episode normally sees me through an 8 to 10k run. Very respectable, Rick. We met briefly when I was at the IPPI, I remember, and I'm now director of the Police Foundation, the independent policing think tank. I'm just writing following the discussion on the last episode about Cressida Dick and police accountability, which I listened while running up a particularly steep hill between Horsepath and Garsington. I agree there are a miracle you could concentrate, frankly, written. I agree there are blurred lines of accountability, and I agree with your point that this can be a significant problem in public services generally. However, regarding policing specifically, there are actually good reasons why accountability is blurred. This is because of the nature of the police and the powers they hold. They're officers of the Crown and rightly not servants of the executive. No politician should be able to instruct a police officer to investigate a crime or arrest a person. Nevertheless, while rightly operationally independent, they should be accountable. They should always be answerable for their operation decisions and their conduct retrospectively. Elected politicians should set the broad strategic priorities they work to. They should always explain why they have made the decisions they have. This is the most significant one when it comes to decisions about the Downing Street parties. The Met is terrible at explaining why they do what they do. They typically put out short press statements. They seem to regard operational independence as meaning they don't have to justify their decisions. Exactly. Uh, anyway, next month, they're publishing. Uh, Rick is publishing a major report with the legendary Sir Michael Barber, who worked for Tony Blair and then advised Boris Johnson on policy delivery. I don't know whether he's, I think he's keeping his distance at the moment on that front. On the future of policing, uh, which addresses these issues. Oh, well, great. I uh, look forward to it, Rick. And that will be very important because it, it is, you s- summarise brilliantly the need for independence and what form the accountability should take. But I still think to whom and how are key questions, which maybe you'll answer. I'll, I'll, I'll take a look at that when the report comes out. Ama McGuinness says, quick email from Bedford, Labour's smallest majority in the country, 145. Only with the help of the Brexit party did Labour hold on to it. You always say that a successful PM or would-be PM needs to be able to tell a story to the country. Absolutely fundamental. Do you think that Starmer has found his or, in fact, has had it presented to him by Johnson? Starmer, the patriotic, principled lawyer, standing up for honesty and decency against the dodgy Tory party and their mendacious, disrespectful leader. Maybe. Maybe, he adds, do you think that such a story would be strong enough to form part of a larger, positive and optimistic strategy of post-COVID, post-Brexit, moral and economic national renewal? Well, that, I think, is the important part. He cannot, Starmer, work on the fact that there will be this gorgeous, dreamlike juxtaposition of stability and integrity versus chaos and misconduct rarely gets as neat as that for a Labour leader. It needs to be much more. And Oeyman adds, I don't run or bake bread, but have a decent collection of fine whiskies. Does this count? Certainly does. If you're knocking back the whiskey while listening to the uh, podcast, you will be on a high throughout. And that is the whole idea. But you're right that it needs, I think it needs more than that, as I say, very neat uh, kind of, uh, what's the word, juxtaposition. 
So, yeah, let's do one more. This is from uh, Helen Gordon, who's a, uh, one of the bread makers. Helen said, oh, yeah, because this is I've picked this one out because it's relevant. There's a lot of talk about Carrie Johnson at the moment. And I argued in a podcast that you can originate some of these parties to Carrie Johnson and Johnson's relationship with her. I stress that it was in the end him who must be made accountable. Uh, but now there's a biography about her and so on. And Helen, Helen the baker, says, I want to respond to your observation that Carrie Johnson is the party animal at number 10 and that Boris Johnson is a passive bystander. I didn't say that, uh, Helen. Far from it. He is responsible and he takes the decisions that he must be politically accountable for. I just said he didn't like parties that much. While I take your point that he's unsociable and lacks friends, I'm uncomfortable at the assumption that Boris is simply a passive bystander, so couldn't intervene to close this mad socialising down. Now, I agree with you. I, 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 if I didn't make that point, I should have done. It was up to him. Uh, but she was the originator. Uh, he should have stopped it. But in some cases, it appears anyway, as if uh, some of the parties, you know, in the flat and so on, were more her than him. I've no idea. Perhaps the report uh, when it comes out and the police inquiries, etc., will suggest otherwise. But if I didn't make that clear, Helen, I really uh, should have done. Now, she is relevant to the saga, but only in her, in as far as he must be held to account as the elected politician. She hasn't got to be held to account. She can do what she wants within the law, but he has to be held to account. And in a curious way, I think the police investigation and the wider Grey report will do that. But again, I know I'm repeating myself. We can all, you know, Helen the Baker, me, others, reach that conclusion. We can't do anything about it. Only Tory MPs have agency at this point in this extraordinary, never-ending saga. Now, we've been going for about uh, 50 minutes. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to um, call a halt. Now, hopefully those of you who've been doing an 8 to 10K, that's giving you just... No, no, you have to be quite fast. Don't you do it under 50. Well, there we go. Just therefore, if you don't mind, a couple of reminders again. We're on Patreon. Most podcasts are, and I've been wanting to do it for ages. And as I say, there are lots of kind of things you will get if you kindly support us via that route. And the thing I'm really excited about, I don't know whether I'm excited or not about performing in people's houses. I think I'm quite excited by that idea, to be honest. Um, uh, but you'll see anyway, you'll see what there is. But I, I really enjoyed reflecting on that general election in February 1974. And from now on, it's over to you to get me to do the next one. And then there will be another series of other things. But I think I'll do maybe six or eight epic general elections and their consequences and then move on to another do get in touch so that will be you can get the rock and roll politics patreon and all the links will be on the blurb with the podcast uh we're live at king's place at a moment where who knows where we'll be to be honest we don't know whether the police investigation will be over the gray report out whether the MPs will have reached that 54 target but there will be much to reflect on that's monday february the 21st tickets at the King's Place website. Exciting times for all us lot trying to make sense of the mad world of politics. Thanks again for your brilliant questions. I'm really sorry. I know I don't have time to read them all out. In fact, I had a load more ready to read. 
So that's it, though, for this week. Uh, who knows where we'll be by this time next week. Have a great time, whatever you're doing, from baking bread to drinking whiskey. Um, I'd just like to say that the audio production was by Alex Reese from Podmasters. Have a great week. Thanks so much for tuning in. See you next time. Bye. <laughs>